Till I'm tiptoed you Dot com The podcast about pop culture Black history and spirituality Yeah It's about to be a great vibe Dr. Tip Gonna take it away Till I'm tiptoed you Hey y'all, hey, it's your girl Tip. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Told You. Let me start by saying if this sounds a little funky today, um, I'm doing it laying in bed. <laughs> today is Valentine's Day. It's rainy outside and I would rather be cuddled up in the bed with the rain hitting the roof with someone special, but um, you know, life just didn't have that for me today. So I decided to cuddle up in the bed with you. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Um, so again, if I sound a little muffled, it's because I'm not. I'm under the weighted blanket and I've, I'm looking out of the window. But yeah, I'm in bed. There's some things I want to talk about today. Um, I want to talk about black love as black freedom. I am, although I'm not... Um, where I would love to be right now, with whom, whomever the universe has for me. Um, I am full of love today, and I wanted to share that with you. So I'm recording. Usually I try to get up on Monday mornings and record on the same day that I upload the podcast, but I'm so full between Black Love yesterday and today being Valentine's Day and watching Judas and the Black Messiah that I wanted to record. So here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah, um, and I want to talk about an Adinkra symbol that hit me kind of hard today. So I'm just going to jump right in. If you have not seen Judas and the Black Messiah, quit waiting. Go see it. But don't worry. I'm giving you no spoilers. All right. I'm going to talk about it generally in, in its ideas um, and not about the specific plot. Although if you know anything about the history, you know what happens at the end. Um, but I wanted to say this. You know, Judas and the Black Messiah is a lot of things. It's a lot of stories. Um, it's a lot of what we need, I think, in this particular moment. And I'm going to go there in just a second. But I want to say that more than anything else, it's a love story. Right? And that's the beauty of it. Um, I'll talk about this on another episode. But it, the Black Arts Movement is such a powerful movement. It's such an important part of history. It's one of my favorite parts of Black history, the Black Arts Movement, because it speaks to me specifically in terms of what I think and what I believe and my research on material culture and so on and so forth. Black art um, was written about and thought about um, and felt about <laughs> in a really particular kind of way. And then it was the idea that the art itself is supposed to move us. It's supposed to move us to a kind of love of self, a love of blackness that was political, right? And I see this film, Judas and the Black Messiah, that way. Um, 
I want to I want to have a panel conversation about it probably on the very next on the next episode. So if you're interested in being on that panel, feel free to send me an email to drtip at tellemtiptoldyou.com um, and maybe you can be on the podcast next week. I have some people in mind that I'll reach out to as well. But I I want to talk about it uh, generally as a piece of black art with some black artists. But I also want um I wanted today, because again, I feel so full of love that I wanted to talk about it as a love story. First, I think the film itself, the creation of the film itself, is a love letter to another generation. Like, I'm, I was watching, and I was looking at the, the wardrobe, right? The clothes, the hairstyles, um, just even the swag of blackness, and it's come full circle. Like that generation's taste and style is manifesting in today's taste and style, our young people's taste and style. And what's beautiful about it is I think the same politics can show up if we do our job right. And so I really saw this film as an act of love, right? The words don't mean any... I'm not going to give it away, but the words don't mean anything without the actions, right? There's a scene in the film where that that phrase becomes real. But the words don't mean anything without the actions. And I think this movie is a, the act of creating a movie like this is an act of love for the present generation. It connects them to something a little bit older than themselves. It, it may ignite a hunger within them to learn more about the movement and about the people of the movement and the commitments these people had. A lot of the Panthers, man, they still, you know, some of them are still incarcerated. Some of them are still abroad. Some of them are in the ground. All because they love the people, right? And so to give a new generation a story of that kind of commitment and black love is a gift of love. And I think we need to see it that way. The other part of the black love story, um, well, let me go back and say something about intergenerationalism. As As an HBCU professor, one of the most aggravating things to me is how some elders see their lives as completely distinct and disparate from the lives of young people And they criticize the moves that these young people make, not understanding that it is our moves that shape those moves, right? That um, we've created among our young people the behaviors that they exhibit. We've created the technology that shapes their behaviors. We've created the school curricula that shape their behaviors, so on and so the economy. And sometimes we criticize them for doing the things that, you know... We've given birth to. And what's powerful is sitting across the table of generations and helping all of us see the power of the collective, right? Uh, the Yoruba have a proverb, and I'm paraphrasing, it says roughly, the, hand, the vase that's on the high shelf or the gourd that's on the high shelf, the elder's hand cannot fit inside the gourd that's in the, on the high shelf, the child's hand cannot reach. And it's the idea that the old and the young have to work together for the common goal. And there is love in that. There is love in understanding that our differences are what makes us powerful. 
So I wanted to say that. But the other part is that this is just a pure, you know, it's a love story. It's a love story between Chairman Fred Hampton and Deborah, right? Um, there's there's a part of the film early in their relationship, and it really made me hunger for something. I don't want to I don't want to give away the scene, but suffice it to say. <laughs> Was it Angela Davis that said a revolutionary woman can't have no reactionary man? Like, it, there is a hunger I think some of us have about finding partnership among those who hold the same commitments we hold. Now, I'm not saying that the two people have to be identically the same. In fact, the Yoruba also say that two long-nosed people shouldn't drink from the same cup. Like, there, there are differences that make the relationship more powerful. But there's something I envy about that scene. I'm going to wait to go into detail about that because I want to give you all time to see it in case you haven't seen it. I don't want to ruin it. But just know that there are images of black love in that film that are different than many of the images that we we see often on the silver screen. Often the the images of black love we see involve um, music, dance, sex, you know, a certain kind of romance. But what's most beautiful about this film is it shows us another kind of black love that revolves around politics and intellectual engagement and ideas. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. The Oh my gosh, wanting children together and it being the man who, you know, it just, y'all, <laughs> Needless to say, it put me in a little bit of a mood because I'm by myself this morning. But, you know, hey, <laughs> it was still a beautiful love story. It, it, it was a kind of radical love, that kind of changing love that fundamentally shifts um, your identity. It fundamentally, fundamentally shifts you to be a better person. And it was just, oh, my God, it was beautiful. So the other part of the black love story is um, there was a love story between the party and the people, right? That, as I said before, these people dedicated their lives, some of them lost their lives by violence or incarceration or by exile because they cared for the people's soul. That kind of deep commitment is a lesson to us all. Like, do we love blackness that much? Now, some of us love to perform blackness, but do we love blackness enough that we are committed to it? Like, one of the things that struck me about the film is how Hampton dedicated each part of himself to the people. Right, Every part of himself was dedicated to the people. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it led me to um, really do some soul searching about what I wanted to talk about next. And that is black love is freedom. That there is a kind of freedom in trusting black love. And a lot of us, because of the baggage that we've carried from, from relationships, from living in a capitalist, misogynistic um, society, it has robbed us of that. 
understanding that black love is freedom, that it's not something to fear, it's not something to run from, it's not something to uh, be suspicious of. And I'm speaking to myself in some ways that I need to talk to myself, but I do believe that there are some people who need to hear this, that, you know, sometimes we, we are afraid of black love because we've been fed this pathology about what it can look like. But one of the most powerful things about this film for me is that it gives us another possibility that black love, even if it, only, even if it exists in the physical realm for only a while, is worth it. That there is a kind of freedom in that, a kind of freedom in allowing someone to know your soul, to bear your soul, to share your most intimate parts of yourself. And I'm not talking about sexually. I'm talking about, you know, your fears and your um, ugly, just to show another person those things, even if it's for just a moment, is powerfully freeing. And we're blessed when we get parts of that, when we get glimpses of it. Some of us are angry that we don't get a, um, you know, a 50-year, 60-year commitment that looks like that. But any glimpse of it is a blessing. Any glimpse of it is a, is, is a lesson in freedom. So a coma, and forgive me if I'm saying that wrong um, because I don't speak shui, but a coma is an adinkra. Some of you know my master's thesis was about adinkra symbolism. Adinkra is a metasymbolic system of communication um, from the Akan people of um, Ghana and southern Cote d'Ivoire. And it was originally used in funerary textiles. But now adinkra is everywhere. You know, many of us, myself included, have adinkra tattoos. It shows up in jewelry. It shows up in... Um, modern-day textiles, um, all kinds of ways. But while it, it is becoming increasingly decorative, for those of us who seek the cultural roots of it, it is still used as communicative text. It still is used to communicate ideas. And one of the symbols of Adinkra is Akoma. And Akoma is uh, represented by what we would take as a heart, right? So it's a picture of a heart, but it means patience and endurance and tolerance and goodwill, right? So coma is like patience, endurance, tolerance, and goodwill. Um, it, is, it is represented sometimes to also mean love. But I wanted to just today to think about a coma and what it means to be patient, endure, to tolerate and have goodwill. And if you know me, you know, I looked up these definitions because I wanted to have a deeper understanding of a coma today. And so I looked up tolerance because it seems to me that when we talk about love, unless we're talking about um, the Corinthians passage, you know, love is patient, love is kind. Um, unless we're talking about love in that way, we tend not to think of love as tolerance. And it sounded to me like it was a very shallow love until I looked up what the word tolerance really meant, means. And it means to allow the existence or occurrence of a thing. To, uh, to allow the existence or occurrence of a thing. See, some of us fall in love. I'm, I have been guilty of this. Some of us fall in love wanting to change the person. 
wanting to change the circumstances around that person, forgetting that to love that person may be to want the best for them. But it is also to allow them to exist as they are. Like that is, that's a level of love I, I want to grow to reach. I don't know that I'm there. I don't think I'm there. But I want to grow to that point. I want to grow to that point. That it really touched me that it's love is supposed to be patient. And I am, <sighs> yeah, yeah. The endurance and patience part goes with the tolerance part. Like, that's love. And I I don't think that sometimes we get that, especially if we're talking about, you know, this, this commitment to black love on the whole, like the love of blackness, the love of black people, period, that sometimes our tolerance of blackness that doesn't look the way we want it to look is limited. That's not real. That's not a coma. Right? It's not real love if we don't allow people to grow in their own space and time. That was really convicting of me when I looked at that, especially in light of watching Judas and the Black Messiah. That there, um, you know, when I, I watched the film last night and again this morning. So when I watched the film last night, what, what was one of the prevailing messages for me that I was trying to unpack before I fell asleep was... Um, you know, in black history, it has always been very dangerous to trust the wrong black person because there are black people whose commitments to the collective are secondary to their commitments to self, right? And those people can be dangerous to a liberation movement. That is true, and I have no doubts about that. But there is another piece, and the other piece is, do we still need to extend them love and that's the part I'm, I'm I'm trying to tease out in terms of the collective love right do is there still space for someone like a Bill O'Neill like is what was there space for a healing I don't know I don't have the answer to that I would love for y'all to talk back to me I don't have the answer for that like what 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 love is owed to him or when someone betrays the collective people like that, for whatever reason, do they deserve not being loved? Like, I, I, I'm stuck on that because if a coma is about tolerance and it's about patience and it's about endurance, that is a very long-lasting thing, right? And it means that we allow people to grow. And I, I just don't know. I don't know. I, I You know... I don't know. That's that's one of those things I want to unpack. That's why I want a panel to talk about this with, because I want to unpack that idea. I really do. Um, I really do. Okay, so the other thing about a coma. So I thought about it in, in terms of a love for the people. And then I stopped and I thought about it a little bit in terms of romantic love. But I really have to, I'm I'm trying to get to the point where I'm thinking about it now in terms of a personal love, a self-love, right? And to be tolerant with oneself and to be patient with oneself 
and to understand that the changes we may want to make may take time, like that there is something in there. Like the film, and the reminder that the film is, some of us forget, it is easy to forget because the brother was so wise and so powerful, but to remember that Hampton was only 21 when he died. He was a baby. And so last night when I watched it, remembering his age, a sense of urgency was reawakened within me. That, that whole, how much work am I doing daily to contribute to the liberation of my people? Literally, that's my, that was my thought. <laughs> how much work am I doing daily to liberate to the, I mean, to contribute to the liberation of my people? Like there was a sense of urgency. There is a sense of urgency that has been reawakened. That hasn't gone away um, from last night to now. But what what is coming into that though is how can I have the same sense of urgency and wanting myself to be better at the same time being patient with myself and exhibiting goodwill towards the moves I do make. Like to me, there's a balance there that I think I have to master. I don't know how to do that. So again, that's where I want to have some conversations with some other people about what that begins to look like. I, you know, I, the other thing that's on my mind, I, I know this is a very <laughs> disjointed podcast, and maybe I should have waited until the, tomorrow morning to record, but I just, I had to get it out today, y'all, I'm sorry. So I did some other definitional type of stuff because I, I'm, I was going down the rabbit hole. So I looked up revolution because, you know, Hampton's famous speech and, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot when we see him is, I am a revolutionary, right? So I looked up revolution and it means to drastically, it's drastic or wide reaching change in something or the way it works or in people's ideas about it. So I often think of revolution as the fundamental radical shift in how something exists, right? Like if we want a if we want a revolution, a political revolution for example, it's a fundamental shift in the way things are organized and exist. That's the way I tend to think of revolution. But that other part of the definition I've never really s- sat with. And that's that a revolution is also shifts in thinking about a thing. So if we talk about black love as revolutionary, how can we convince black people to fundamentally change the way they think about black people? I know the Panthers, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, I know the Panthers were onto something with the community education model. Because I know, (laughs) as an educator, but also as someone who studies educational philosophy, I know, as Asa Hilliard writes about in African Power, I know that if you want to shape a people, you control the socialization of their children. Education is a lot more powerful than we give room for, or, or consideration of. 
And I said a couple of weeks ago on my stories that I don't trust activists who don't have a relationship with schools and with children. What does a curriculum of love look like? I think I'm going to write one. A curriculum that is centered in joy and love. Like, I really, that is a revolutionary act. You understand what I'm saying? That's something I've, I, I've played with writing curriculum before. I've written curriculum before. One of, one, of the ones, one of the best ones I've ever written was called Bridging the Gap. Um, and it was about intergenerational ties. But I want to write a curriculum about love where the standards and the objectives are centered on a love for the people. I'm saying that out loud. Yeah, I'm saying that out loud. Hold me accountable. I just came to that just now. So I just came to that just now. (laughs) I'm going to do that. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So then I looked up liberation, right? And liberation is freedom from limits. It's freedom from limits. Do you, I want to build a curriculum that's about black love, joy, and liberation. Like, we use these words. This is why I like to look up definitions. We use these words sometimes and we take them for granted that we really know what we're talking about. But do you understand what it means to fight for liberation of a people when it means to free them from limits? Like, we tend to think about the structural limitations, economic limitations, political limitations, right? What it means to live in a carceral state. There's another kind of free from limitations that has to be at the root of even those movements. Y'all, I'm ready to write a curriculum, I think. It's it's the act of setting someone free from imprisonment or oppression. I have never, I've set out to write curricula that empower children. I've set out to write curricula, like I said earlier, to help the, the generations come together. I've never set out to write a curriculum that is centered in joy, whose purpose is black love, to liberate a people. Let me get off this podcast so I can get started right now. If anybody is interested in being on the podcast week next week, um, or, you know, it might be sometime after that, depending on our schedules. Send me an email to Dr. Tip at tellemtiptoldra.com. We'll give folks time to watch Judas and the Black Messiah. Please do so. If you have to borrow somebody's HBO password to do it, do it. Watch the film so that we can go on and get into the spoilers. Um, because I do think there are some other things. I wanted to just talk about general love today. But there are some other things we really have to unpack with the Bill O'Neill story. Like, we really have to unpack that, especially in light of... So yesterday, the, the Senate voted to acquit Trump. You know, we're, we're, none of us are surprised by that. If you've paid attention to whiteness in this country, it's never held itself uh, accountable for anything. So we knew that wasn't going to happen yesterday. But on the heels of Tim Scott, you know, the black Republican voting to acquit Trump, there's something there that is also in that Bill O'Neill story that it's time for us to have some serious conversations about black people who have no allegiance to black people. Like, and what we do with that 
I just, you know, I want to unpack those things. So if you're interested in having conversations with me about Judas and the Black Messiah on the podcast, send me an email to drtip at tellemtiptoldy.com. For those of you for whom Valentine's Day was a little rough, I'm sending you all the love your heart can hold. Let me say this to you that I am learning for myself. Be clear on what you want. That's the only way you can get it. Tell them to told you. Y'all make it a good one, y'all.